this morning comes from Romans 16, and we're reading the last few verses this morning, verse 25 through to the end. This is the way that Paul ends this great letter. He ties everything together right from the very beginning, from verse 1 of chapter 1, right through to uh, the last verses we read last week. He unites it all together with these closing words. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord and we give thanks to him for it this morning. Before we uh, sing together again, we're going to join together in prayer and um, echo some of these words of the Apostle Paul as we give thanks to God for his great goodness to us as a church and as a world. So let's pray together. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Jesus is indeed a wonderful and a worthy Savior, worthy to receive all our praise for all that He has done. And Lord, we thank you that as we gather together around your Word this morning, it is about Jesus that we read, about His work, His amazing, transforming, saving work. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless us, not just with a better understanding of the details of this passage. But Lord, that you would bless us in having us know how we are to live our lives in light of what we read, how we are to be transformed, how we are to be built up and encouraged and to go and live as a blessed people. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's really no avoiding it at this point in the year. We're looking towards Christmas, and that is almost all anybody has to talk about at this point. Whether we have done our Christmas shopping or not, no. Whether we've got all our wrapping and cards ready yet, no. Whether we're looking forward to it, maybe, depending on how stressed we get about these things. Who are we having for Christmas Day? Are we going to someone else for Christmas Day? It just goes on and on, doesn't it? There's no end to it. And when you go into the shop, you're blasted with Christmas music and Christmas displays, and it just fills our vision. And it's a funny day, Christmas, because there is so much anticipation. And it's a peculiar thing, isn't it, to have so much anticipation that really as soon as we get to probably about October time, Really, that's all we're focused on. For a huge chunk of the year, we focus on this one day, which for the world really has no meaning. It's just a day off where we all get together and eat too much. And that's, as far as the world is concerned, pretty much the sole significance to Christmas. We give gifts to one another and we sort of heap pressure on ourselves to buy meaningful gifts and the kind of gift that's really going to make someone's uh, not just day but year and so on. But that, that is it as far as the world is concerned. And yet we focus 
all our attention on it. We get so excited about it and so, uh, so pressurized, I think, to have a good day that when Christmas Day comes, sometimes it can just be the day that you've been dreaming of all year round, and other times it can just seem like a relief come bedtime that it's finished for another year, and I don't need to think about it now until October time uh, the, the following year. Building up towards something can be a bit like that, can it? It can be um, exciting, and we can be looking forward to it, but when the day actually comes, we can be sometimes just glad it's done. I'm not going to ask the question and expect a response from you this morning about whether that's how you feel throughout our sermon series in Romans or not, but that is sometimes how we come to a book of the Bible, or sometimes how we approach a sermon series. We hear there's going to be a series on X, and we think, oh, great, I've always really wanted to know more about that or to study this, or I've always loved that book and love spending time reading it. I'm really looking forward to it. And then come halfway through the year, we think it's been a long time. Are we ever getting to the end of this? And then we come to the end, and sometimes we can just be glad it's done. And we're looking forward to the next series whenever that might come and whatever that might be on. And when it comes to Paul writing this book, there is a sense in which we can maybe wonder if that's what has happened. He's reached real high points throughout the book. There have been a number of really significant moments in the book of Romans. And we maybe wonder if it just sort of reached its peak, say chapters 8, 7, 8, and 9 maybe, or, or you know, towards chapter 11 perhaps, 10 and 11 and, and 12 or something, and, and then it sort of tails off down back towards the foothills again as we've crested the mountain and gone down the other side. But I don't think it has. Paul ends the letter in almost exactly the same way, and he uses, in many cases, pretty much exactly the same words as he introduces his letter with. And that, again, is not to signify that he started in a place, he built up to a high point, and now he's dipped back down to where he started. It's that he has begun to talk about something that is incredibly important to him and to the world, and he's talked about all sorts of reasons as to why it's important. And now he's come back round to the start to conclude it really is that amazing. It really is that wonderful. I think Paul, in, in many ways, begins on a high, and he ends on a high. He's been leading up to this the entire epistle for all the amazing things that we've read about. And so he concludes with these few verses, just these three verses at the very end, where he seems to just be wrapping things up. And he talks about really one key thing, the glory of God. That's it. It's about God's glory in something. And that's where uh, we come to this morning. We find Paul reaching, in many ways, the high point of his letter and saying that everything has been about God being glorified in this. By the saving of sinners for himself. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, he says in the opening line. This is a doxology. Sometimes we end, in fact, almost all the time we end our service with a benediction, and a benediction is a blessing that comes from God to us. A doxology is something that goes the other way. We often end our service including benediction and doxology. Doxology is something that begins with us. It means to glorify. 
and we lift up God, we lift up our praises to Him. Having received from Him, we then give back to Him. Benediction and doxology go together, and that's what Paul is doing here at the end. He says he wants God's glory to be seen, to be present in the world, to be manifest, to be made real, as it were, in this world. And it seems like a good way to end the letter. Here are all of the things God has done, he said in the previous 16 chapters. All of the amazing things that he has done and been to us, and now we want to give him all the glory because he's just so, so good, so wonderful. And you can understand why Paul wants to focus on God now, because he's spent this entire time telling the Roman Christians why God and God's grace is so essential in their lives. They were sinners, lost, completely in darkness. They were dead in their sins, he said. They needed to be saved, and there was nothing they could do. And yet God, in His goodness, has stepped down into the muck of this world, the sin of this world, and has lifted them up. And he didn't need to. He would have been entirely just and righteous to just leave everyone in their sin. Because we, we do this willingly. We enter into our sin completely of our own volition. It's part of who we are. And Paul said, we would have been hopelessly lost were it not for God. And yet God has come. And He's given us a life to live and enjoy freely and abundantly. And that's truly wonderful, isn't it? It's an amazing thing. Somebody who does something like that, and it's not just undeserved, but we have actively worked against that end, somebody who does that for us should get all the credit they deserve, shouldn't they? They should get all the glory that's due to them. And we know this um, because we do this all the time. You see in the paper almost every week some local hero has saved a family, has helped someone out of poverty, has done something that they didn't have to do, but they chose to do, and usually the person who's received the benefit of that has, um, has spoken publicly and wanted everyone to know how good a person that was. We saw that at the beginning, if you remember towards the beginning of the pandemic, where um, we realized the toll that COVID was taking, not just on us, but particularly on the emergency services. And most of the country stood on their doorstep of an evening and clapped for the NHS. And it did nothing in that sense. Clapping for doctors and nurses doesn't actually do anything for them, but it acknowledges their sacrifice, the fact that they were putting their lives on the line for our sake. Now, there's a sense in which we think, well, that's what doctors and nurses are supposed to do. They're supposed to help heal the sick. And yet we recognized the step above and beyond many of our medical staff, particularly in this country, uh, were were going to. And so we, we applauded that, literally. We glorified them. We acknowledged their, uh, their goodness, their sacrifice, and so on. And it, it's the same for uh, the police and the fire brigade and so on. We recognize the sacrifice. And we want these people to be lifted up and acknowledged because they are worthy of honor for what they've done. It's not arrogance. It's not um, self-seeking praise and adulation. It's not people vainly wanting all of this glory. It is simply what is fitting and what is right. And that is what Paul says about God. 
This is simply doing what is right, what is fitting for one who has done everything for us. It's not just that he's done some things for us. He's blessed us in some ways. He's completely transformed us. He's given us everything, and we didn't deserve any of it. And it's right that we honor that. It's right that we glorify God for that amazing goodness. Even if he hadn't saved us, he would still be deserving of all the glory we have to give because he made us. He made this universe and he placed us in it and gave us a part in it and committed um, us to, to his care. So we glorify him together because of what he's done and who he is. But you notice what Paul says. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul is acknowledging that God's glory is made known throughout the world through many means, but particularly through the saving and the strengthening of his people through God's gospel work. Paul says, in a sort of peculiar turn of phrase to us, that it is to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now, this isn't Paul saying, I have a gospel message that I'm proclaiming, and I go around and proclaim it, and people are saved because it's my gospel message. And it's a bit better than Barnabas or Apollos or, or Peter's gospel message, because they go and do their thing, but this is my gospel message. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that this is the gospel message that, in a sense, belongs to him because it is testifying about what change has been brought to bear on his life. It's the gospel that's transformed Paul, that's made Paul who Paul is. It's my gospel, and I've gone around proclaiming it. It's the gospel that defines Paul. He lives every day in light of his relationship with God because he has been saved from his sins. He has cast himself upon Christ. He has asked for forgiveness. He has repented and is following Jesus, the gospel all by the grace of God, by faith in Christ. And this defines who Paul is. So as he goes about serving God and worshiping God, it is the gospel that defines him. As he seeks forgiveness and repentance for his ongoing struggles with sin that he's talked about in chapter 7, particularly of Romans, the gospel defines him. It defines his relationship with other people as he goes and seeks to encourage Christian brothers and sisters to go on living lives of repentance and faith and, and speaking to them about these things. It defines his relationship with the, the non-Christian world as he shares the gospel with sinful people that he was like one day and yet is no longer like that now because of what God has done for him. He's devoted his life to making the saving gospel known to everybody he knows. And this glorifies God. It is he repeats himself and puts it in another way, the preaching of Jesus Christ. And Paul preaches again and again and again to everyone, to Christians, that they would grow in their knowledge of it and their dependence on God through the sharing of the good news of the gospel. He preaches it to non-Christians that they would be saved and know the wonder of God's love and mercy. He works only so that he might have enough money to further his witnessing to Christ and the gospel. Everything in Paul's life is subordinate to the gospel. He endures all things for the sake of Christ, whether he's beaten or nearly stoned to death or imprisoned or whatever it is, the rejection of even Christians. 
He endures it all because he knows that everything he experiences drives him closer to the Lord and increases his ability to speak to people about these things. And as he grows in his understanding through that experience, the better servant of Christ he becomes. And it's amazing to think of the Apostle Paul in that way. We sort of assume that Paul is saved in this road to Damascus experience and sort of pops into existence in the Christian world as a fully formed master theologian and evangelist. And that's simply not the case. Granted, he had many advantages. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Bible back to front and inside out. And he had all of that that he brought with him into his early days as a Christian. But, but Paul had to learn and grow just like everybody else had to learn and grow. And Paul recognizes that all of his even terrible experiences have made him better at everything he does for the sake of Christ. And that glorifies God. Even in dire circumstances, the most painful of situations, he knows he is glorifying God because it's all grist to the mill. It's all employed for the glorifying of God, for the proclamation of the gospel. This is how Paul has been strengthened so that God is glorified in him, and that's exactly what he wants for the Christians in Rome. He wants them to experience all of the joys and all of the hardships of life, but with the gospel, so that they will be strong. And what strong means here is not someone who with a stiff upper lip can just coast through all of life's difficulties, someone who will be greatly and deeply impacted by the painful circumstances of life, and yet will do so in a Christian way in a way that continues to lift up God and say, even in this difficulty, I acknowledge your place over my life. Even in this hardship, I recognize you're sovereign and you love me. Even though I can't see it, I can't feel it. That's what strong means. That in every situation, we glorify the God who made us and transformed us and has blessed us beyond measure. So as we come to the end of Romans, the question for us is, is this our goal, to be strong in our faith? I do hope so. But why do we want to be strong in our faith? The temptation is to think about it in a purely sort of utilitarian sort of perspective. I want to be strong in my faith so I'm better at living as a Christian. And there's a sense in which we receive the blessing of that, the ability to cope with life's difficulties and so on, uh, that we have our place in the church where we serve and we grow and so on, that it all focuses on us. And there is a sense in which we are blessed beyond measure as we grow as Christians, but the focus is never us. God didn't save you simply for you, for your benefit. You have benefited, but God saved you primarily for His glory to testify to his amazing ability to redeem sinners. People lost in their sin. No idea that they're sinners. And yet, God is able to change and transform lives such as ours. That is why God saved you first and foremost. And yes, he loves you and he wants to bless you with that. And he does. He's able to do all of these things together. But we exist primarily to give glory to God. And if that is our focus, then we will be made able to weather difficulties of life as well as joys, not easily, never easily, but with greater maturity. And we'll come out the other side intact, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Our aim is, even as we suffer ill health, loss, disappointment, frustration, failure, 
Instead of demanding to know why God has done this to me or how I could ever have failed so badly to have brought this upon myself, we see that this present suffering has equipped us to know more of the grace of God than we did before. And that doesn't trivialize our suffering. It doesn't make the suffering that we experience in any way just a means to an end. God doesn't spend the lives of His children frivolously. But it helps us to recognize why we are going through all of these difficulties and what God's expectation of us is as we come out the other side. We go through it all so that we are better equipped to glorify God and to help those around us. We are better able to draw alongside others and help them see God, even in difficult circumstances, because we've endured them. And that's one of the reasons why it's such a blessing that we all come together from different places, different circumstances. Some of us are married, some of us are single, some of us have children, some of us don't. Some of us have lost close loved ones and family and and, uh, friends. Some of us haven't yet. And the reason that it's good that we're all together in a church, why it's essential we're all together in a church, is that when we get to that place where we've come to the end of ourselves, somebody else has already been there. And they can speak to us in ways that that help us know that they understand. Even though they can't fully appreciate my unique circumstances, they can understand what we're going through and how God helped them to come through it and how God can help us to come through and out the other side so that we glorify God for all His goodness to us, even in suffering. God is glorified in the saving of sinners and the strengthening of those saved sinners in His church. God is glorified by the purpose of His people, Paul is saying, which is where he goes next in 25 through to 26. He says, according, now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. He's saying that the saving work of God has accomplished in them this salvation. And this has been a mystery throughout the history of the world, but uniquely in Paul's day, in Jesus' time, this has been revealed, God's plan has been revealed, made fully known through Jesus and through the church. Again, remember Paul's talking about the glory of God manifest through his people, specifically in the world. Not just in all creation, we see God's glory revealed in the majesty of creation, but God reveals himself specifically through Jesus and through the body of Christ that is the church. And Paul says that before the coming of Jesus, God's plan of salvation was worked out in the old covenant with Israel and was made known, but not clearly seen. It was foreshadowed. It was glimpsed, but dimly. We we see all of the sacrifices of the old covenant in the temple and in the tabernacle before that, and we can see in them something that leads to Jesus that is going that way, but, but the people of Israel couldn't see exactly how it would end. There is always a question in the Old Testament about where all this is going. Why are we endlessly sacrificing bulls and goats and 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 doing all of these other things to keep ourselves ritually pure and clean? Is this just going to run on forever? And the answer is no, it's going somewhere. There will one day be an end when the perfect sacrifice is made once and for all. 
but they can't see what it will be. They can't see when it will come. We see this in the foreshadowing of the lives of the patriarchs, like Abraham, when you remember Abraham is led up Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. And as far as Abraham's concerned, he's going to have to sacrifice his son that he's waited his whole life for, that seemed impossible he would ever come. And now he's here, and now God wants me to kill him. And in the last moment, God spares Isaac and says to Abraham, it's okay, I don't want you to kill your son. But what he's doing is he is foreshadowing the sacrifice that God himself will make when he does sacrifice his son, his only son, his beloved son. It foreshadows all the way through the old covenant into the new. God is slowly bringing a solution to the problem of sin into the world, but it wasn't fully seen until Jesus came, and it wasn't fully understood until the church was born, the recipient of that blessing, that sacrifice. The evidence that it has been successful. It wasn't shared with the world fully until the apostles preach it from Pentecost onwards and testify to what God has now achieved. But the plan, fully revealed, could be seen all the way back through Genesis. And we touched on that when we began Genesis, you may remember, uh, a couple of years ago now when we started Genesis and we understood from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that God has a plan of salvation worked out before Adam and Eve ever sinned. And in Revelation, we find out that the Lamb of God has been slain, as it were, from before the foundation of the world. God always has a plan. And now it has been made clear, revealed, and that's what mystery almost always means in the New Testament. Something that has been hidden, but is going to be revealed. It's not always going to be um, obscured. There will come a resolution one day, and we will understand what it's all been about. And that's what Paul says has come now. And the church is part of that revealing. It's been kept secret for ages, but now we can see that God's people the recipients of God's grace are the the revelation of God's salvation plan. And this necessitates glory given to God. Because who would ever, ever have come up with a plan like that and been able to actually carry it out to fruition? When you think back to um, the, the Remembrance Day service that we've just had last week, and we look back to say that the first or the second world war, we look back now and we know it's a fact of history that there were all sorts of plans made for all of those little conflicts that made up part of the greater first world war or second world war. There are historical records we can go and read of all the different plans and and things that were put in place. But none of those people who made those plans could say with absolute certainty from before it all began to the very end, this will work. They believed it would. They hoped it could. But they couldn't know. There was no way for them to put everything in place and and say it will definitely work out. Why? Because it involved people. And as we thought about not all that long ago, that great quote from Mike Tyson, that everybody's plan is, is perfect and great until they get punched in the face. And, and as soon as you involve another human being in the process that you have planned, you've got no idea what's going to happen. And yet, we can look back throughout the Old Covenant and recognize in exquisite detail God has laid out His salvation plan that people at the time couldn't see because they were in the midst of it all, but we look back and see how it was all worked out. When the wise men, however many of them, turn up at the infant Jesus's 
um, whether it's his birth or whether it's likely to be a fair bit of time after his birth, by the time they arise, they only get to Bethlehem. How? Because they turn up in, in Jerusalem, they go to see Herod, and they just ask. We've come to see this king. And so they gather all the, the sort of wise men, all the, all the scribes and the, the scholars together, and say, where is the baby going to be born? And they know. How do they know? They've got no idea who Jesus is. But they can go to Micah and see that Micah says very clearly that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he is. So the wise men say, okay, and they go to Bethlehem. Now, Micah wasn't around in Jesus' day. He hadn't just finished writing this. The ink wasn't wet, and he just hands it to the wise men and says, well, this is what I think. Micah had been dead for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And yet they knew exactly where Jesus was going to be born. They knew exactly what he was going to be like because Isaiah tells you exactly what Jesus is going to do. And it was unbelievable in Isaiah's day, so much so that come the time of Jesus, the scribes and scholars who knew Isaiah inside out couldn't tell you what Jesus was going to do because it's just ridiculous that God would send his own son who would then die on a cross. That's absurd. And yet, when we look back, we see how it all dovetails together perfectly. God worked all of this out in unbelievable detail, in ways that no human being could have brought about themselves. Jesus couldn't have read all this stuff or heard it in synagogue when he was a young boy and thought, I'm going to be the one. And he just sits down and sort of figures it all out that if I'm here at this time and say this, then it'll fulfill that prophecy. There's prophecies about his birth. I don't care how good you are at planning. You cannot plan when you were born. My wife's a phenomenal planner. She didn't plan the day that she was born. We tried to plan the day that our girls were born, and neither of them went along with that plan. And so it is evidently clear from every one of our experience that there are things we simply cannot work out in our own strength. It's not possible. And yet we see it in Jesus' life. And this is revealed through the salvation of a people after the resurrection. Jesus came across two people on the road to Emmaus, and they're downcast because their Messiah, their Savior's died, and they don't know what to do now because they've invested all their hope in the future uh, on, on Jesus, and now he's dead, and they don't know what to do. And Jesus reveals to them, they don't know it's him, he reveals to them from all the Scriptures. All of this had to work out. Why are you downcast? The Bible said this had to happen. How can you not see that? And he just lays it out for them. And they, in a manner that I think we've all experienced, just can't believe it. It all makes sense. And, and they say afterwards, didn't our hearts burn within us? And I don't think that that was something magical happening to them that Jesus was doing. I think it's that experience we have where somebody preaches about some passage that's never made sense to us, and all of a sudden, it all clicks, and you can't believe how it all fits together. It's so clear, so straightforward, and it's so helpful and uplifting or challenging or whatever it might be. And that's what Jesus does to these people. He just lays it all out. It's all there. Should not God, a God who is able to conceive of all of that and actually work it out to the letter, should he not be glorified? Is he not glorified by the very people who receive the blessings of that plan? Think about, just for a moment, what God had to do for Jesus to be born at the right time, in the right place, to the right parents, of the right people, to accomplish the right 
end. How many billions of decisions individual people made that led up to that point? I mean, it's truly astonishing when you think about it. What happens if Joseph had decided he wasn't going to go down to that place one day where he met Mary or her parents and, and was betrothed to be married to her? What happens if he'd gone somewhere else? What happens if Daniel hadn't um, participated in, in the way that he did in exile in Babylon and, and led to the, the, the encouragement and the blessing of God's people that led all the way down? What happens if Abraham hadn't bothered with Sarah because she couldn't produce a child for him, so he was just going to go off with somebody else? What would have happened if any one of the countless people in human history had made one decision that went the other way? It's not how it works, though, is it? Because God in his sovereign power oversaw everything and used all of the decisions, good and bad, righteous and sinful, of all those people to bring about that end. And the implication of that for the church in Paul's day and ours is this, that the saving work of God, the glorious saving work of God, is made even more glorious in your life because of all that had to go in to God saving you and God bringing you to this place. And if we're thinking about this right, we have to think not just about the past, but also the future, where all this is going. Let's say there's another 2,000 years before Christ returns. I don't know. None of us know. But let's say there is. How many countless people will become Christians because of what you have done in this place? And you don't even know it. One conversation with someone, one chance encounter, chance, at the bus stop, one moment at a checkout with somebody where you just talk about where you were on Sunday and just um, how encouraged you were to be part of God's family and worshiping and, and doing all the rest, or somebody just asks you what you think about it and you share a Christian perspective on something, and God uses that to save countless people. Tiny, insignificant things. If God has done it, for 2,000 years since Christ has come. If God has done it for at least three or 4,000 years before that to lead up to the coming of Jesus, why would that stop now with you? You're not that special. You're just not. God will use you to bring about the salvation of countless other people. God will use you to bring even greater glory to his name for all of those people that have come and, and, and been transformed because of what you have done through the strength of Christ, not in your own strength or wisdom or anything else. It doesn't have to be big. This, it's not the size of your situation that matters. It's the size of the God you serve in that situation that brings about all of this transformation. Small things in the service of God can and often are used for enormous effect. Do you think about that when you get up in the morning? When you decide you're going to speak to your neighbor, you're going to stand in line at the checkout at the supermarket, you're going to serve your brothers and sisters in here, you're going to come down some Saturday and help clear out a cupboard. Insignificant, what on earth has that got to do with the plans of God? You have no idea. I don't know, but he does. None of it is without meaning. None of it is without purpose. And the same is true for our suffering. We sometimes wonder why on earth we would ever be allowed to endure the pain and the suffering that we go through. And we recognize it's small compared to the suffering of Jesus on the cross in our place. It was totally undeserved. We recognize that. But we do sometimes wonder. We've got no idea what God is going to use that to do. How that will transform you and make you that bit more useful so that when you speak to someone who's gone through something similar, they're saved and goes off to be the next Billy Graham or whoever else it may happen to be. No idea. 
And there's a sense in which we can't second guess that. All we can do is be faithful in the moment. So when we pray and we read scripture at home on our own, when we suffer and we struggle and we do well and we experience joy, all of it is part of God's plan of salvation and it's all used. None of it's wasted. None of it's for nothing. God doesn't spend the lives of his children needlessly. He uses everything to bring about his ends and his end is glory. And you have your part to play in that. God's glorified in the saving of sinners. He's glorified in the purpose of his people. He's glorified in the fulfilling of our faith as the passage ends. Paul says that this is ultimately according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. He talked about that in the very beginning of of the book, the letter. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. He tells us in his closing lines, that creation and salvation has been brought about to produce obedient children. Which is amazing to think about that, isn't it? Everything's been brought about to bring about the existence of the church. When we look at the church, sometimes we think, really? All of that for this group of people who fail and frustrate each other and do all sorts of silly things all the time? That is what everything is for? And yet, it is... Because the church exists for the glory of God. That's what Adam and Eve were made for in the garden, to testify to the glory of God in everything. And that is who we are, the children of Adam and Eve. Not the first Adam that failed, but the second Adam, Jesus. And all of this, all of this salvation, all of this effort exists, results in the fitting glory given to God that we give him. When you look up at the stars at night, it's easy to see how God's glorified, isn't it? The vastness of the cosmos. We always think like that. Bigger is better. It's huge. It goes beyond our ability to understand just how vast it is and how complex this world, this universe all is. We can understand how God might be glorified in his creation. When we look at the complexity of the smallness of the world, right down through what we can actually see and we can only theorize about how it all holds together, it's amazing. But God's crowning glory isn't any of that stuff. It's amazing. But it's not his chief glory. They are simple processes. However big and small they might be. Dull creatures that exist in this world to do simply as they've been programmed to do and are now corrupted by sin. God's crowning glory is the turning of dead and rebellious and disobedient people into saints. It's doing the exact opposite of what nature does. Everything in nature tends towards chaos, tends towards breaking down and death. And God is doing the exact opposite. He's pushing this enormous rock uphill. He's taking dead stuff and making it live. And not just making it live, but live in such a way that it testifies to his unbelievable power. Where people choose not to go after the sinful things of this world, but choose to glorify God. Which cuts against the grain of everything we see. Everything we're told to do by the world around us. The turning of dead sinners into living saints so that they willingly and joyfully reflect God's glory back to him is God's crowning glory and creation. And we are bound up in Christ to that end because Christ has accomplished it all. When we're obedient to God and live by our faith in him and don't rely on faith in ourselves, we testify to God's glory in a way that nothing else can. This is the wisdom of God and it seems 
like utter foolishness to our world. But this is the wisdom of God. And it's the ground of His glory in the universe throughout time and on into eternity. Church is not some small and insignificant thing. A bit of your life that, that happens on Sunday and then we go on and do other things. Belonging to the church is to belong to Jesus and it is everything because it's about us glorifying God together. So this week, let's live lives in light of the gospel. Let's embody what we believe, as Paul has called us to all the way through Romans. Let's speak about the gospel, proclaiming what we believe. Let's build up others in the way of the gospel, passing on what we believe, and let's glorify the God, the only wise God, today, tomorrow, next week and into eternity through Jesus, who's made it all possible. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your wisdom. We would never have conceived of a plan of salvation like the one that you have brought about. We would never have had the power to sustain such a plan and to guarantee its end. And yet, Lord, you have done it all. And we know we're not at the end yet. We haven't seen the fullness of our faith yet in this life. And that day is coming, Lord, and we are one day closer today than we were yesterday. And so we ask that you would strengthen us as Paul exhorts his listeners to. Lord, that we would be strengthened by the gospel, by your grace, that we would be filled and empowered. Lord, help us, please, to glorify your name, to testify to this amazing saving work you've done in the lives of people like us. Lord, we didn't deserve it, but you did it anyway. And so we ask, Lord, that you would manifest your glory through Ladywell Baptist Church. And Lord, you would do it not so that we might have a great name in this place, but so that you would. Lord, help us to subordinate everything in our lives to that end. And Lord, we ask that you would enable us to do so by your Holy Spirit that dwells within each one of us and by your word as you shape and mold our minds. Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.